This episode is brought to you by IVP. How do we enter into our feelings and listen to what they're telling us instead of ignoring or bypassing them? Professor and personal development coach, Dr. Peace Amadi helps us navigate the complexity of our emotions in her book, Why Do I Feel Like This? With insights from both psychology and scripture, this book offers you a clear plan to get your peace and freedom back and find your joy again. As a listener of this podcast, you can receive Why Do I Feel Like This for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's IVPOD25, at IVPress.com. This is IVP. When people feel deeply listened to, paid attention to, and emotionally attuned to, it's indistinguishable from feeling loved. This capacity for attention and focus that the digital age we're living through and the landscape of the modern world is just deracinating right and left, it's absolutely crucial to the two greatest commandments in the rubric of Jesus, of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Digital Examine podcast. I'm Jay, and I'm so glad you are continuing to join us uh, on this journey and for these conversations as we explore what it looks like to live our lives at a pace in which we can, with God, examine our days, take deep breaths in His presence, and experience His peace, which surpasses all human understanding. A little bit of confession. Um, Just last week, uh, I found myself one particular day uh, overwhelmed by the task list, overwhelmed by a calendar that was so quickly piling up with um, meetings and places to be and people to meet, all good things, but um, overwhelming because it was becoming too much. And uh, one particular morning last week, I took my kids to uh, an early dentist appointment, rushed them off to school, um, got them there a little bit late. So I'm already hurried, frenzied, frantic to a certain extent. And then I was off to my next thing, uh, a whole slew of things I needed to accomplish in the day. And I found myself praying in the car after I had gotten the kids off to school. And this is rare for me, but I had an experience where I sensed God speaking to me, not in an audible voice, but as close to that as I could possibly imagine, at least based on my own experiences, almost an audible voice of God telling me to stop. And so I literally pulled over, began praying audibly to God, having this conversation with him in the car. And as I continued talking and listening, I sensed very strongly from the Lord that he was asking me to do nothing on my task list that day, which caused me initially much more anxiety and fear uh, that I was going to get way behind, more behind than I already was. But I listened. I listened and I didn't do anything that day. Uh, Well, that's not totally true. 
I went home and I read a little bit and then I watched half a movie and my wife happened to be able to get off of work early that day. So she and I went and had a long two hour lunch at a great restaurant in town. And then I went back home and laid down for a bit before I had to go pick the kids up from school. I did nothing that day, but it was everything. And sometimes I think God disrupts the rhythms of our days to grab a hold of our attention and to hold that attention for a while. And today uh, I am talking to my friend, John Mark Comer. Many of you know John Mark by his work. He's a teacher and a writer based in Southern California. He pastored Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon for nearly two decades before launching Practicing the Way, which is a nonprofit that creates formation resources for local churches. Uh, he's also a teacher in residence at Vintage LA, the author of several best-selling books, including The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, Live No Lies, and his most recent work, Practicing the Way, which which is almost sort of a magnum opus of his life's work up to this point. Um, John Mark is one of the most um, thoughtful leaders I know, and also uh, combines that with an incredible pastoral heart, a dear love for people. And so I think you're going to get a lot out of our conversation today. Uh, so without further ado, here's my conversation with my friend, John Mark Comer. John Mark, so good to see you. Thank you for joining us on the Digital Examine podcast. It is always a pleasure to be around you, Jay. Delight to see you. One of our hopes with this podcast, I was telling you right before we hit record, is that the listening experience itself might be sort of a collective exhale, you know, a reminder to slow down and breathe and be with God. So necessary today um, because of something you've written extensively about, about hurry, the sort of frenzied pace at which we live. You know, that famous Dallas Willard line that that hurry is the the great enemy of the spiritual life. And so so you wrote an entire book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry around this big idea. So for listeners who maybe are not as familiar, maybe define hurry, distinguish it um, from like other expressions of just a full life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty simple. Hurry, at least the way I'm using it, is not the same thing as like a healthy kind of busyness. Hurry is not when you have a lot to do. I have a lot to do. I'm a dad of teenagers. I run a nonprofit. I work. I'm a neighbor and work in the church and all that kind of stuff. I have a lot to do. I have a lot on my plate. Most people in meaningful, generative lives do. Hurry is when you have too much to do and not enough time to do it. <laughs> Some people are thinking, wait, isn't that just being an American or a person or whatever? Um, you have too much to do, not enough time to do it. And so the only way to attempt, most of the time in vain, to cram it all in is to speed up your body, your pace of life, your mind, your thoughts, your prayer life, your devotional life, your relationships to a pace that is simply incompatible with love. And that's really the root issue. That's how I come at it, not through a like, wellness category, but through a spiritual formation category. Jesus said the greatest commandment in all of Scripture is to love God and neighbor as self. And the first descriptor in you know, the New Testament's list of love is love is patient. Another way to translate that is love is unhurried. And when I'm in a hurry, 
um, I tend to be less loving. I'm more irritable, agitated, angry, impatient, controlling, domineering. I'm not gentle, compassionate. I don't listen deeply and well with empathy and emotional attunement. I don't serve and help and value others above myself because I just don't have the time, not because I want to be a jerk or don't care about people or my kids or whatever. So that's the essence of hurry. Too much to do, not enough time to do it. So you speed your mind and body and relationships up to a pace that's incompatible with love, both with other people, becoming a person of love with your closest relationships, and ultimately with God himself. Yeah, the writer M. Scott Peck talks about, uh, and I know you've quoted him before, where he talks about attention being one of the primary forms of love. Yes. And there's this really profound intersection along the lines of what you just said. You know, we live in the attention economy, you know, like Tristan Harris and others, like Mm -hmm. that's the commodity being sold, bought and sold is like our attention. And you have this incredibly sobering idea in Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. You make the point that um, a divided attention, scattered attention is really common amongst wild animals, which makes a lot of sense as a survival mechanism. They've got to look this way and that way, this way and that way to make sure that, you know. Yes. Constantly scanning for threats. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you conclude that this is why animals, wild animals, are incapable of contemplative immersion which is so sobering because we read the description. We're like, Oh my gosh, that's my life. Like this thing and that thing onto the next, you know, the just endless calendar and task list. So talk a little bit about what happens to human beings when our attention is constantly divided and frenzied beyond just the ability to love deeply. What are some things that we lose um, when we are so divided? Yeah. I mean, I think again, it comes back, to love both for God and for others. I am not a neuroscientist, disclaimer of the year, but um, it's my understanding that, you know, when our attention is in a calm, meaning just not an anxious or striving, but an alert and focused state, you know, what Cheek sent me high in his famous and important work called flow, when we're in a flow state and we're almost losing track of time. We're just with a person in a conversation or a book that we're reading or a podcast we're listening to or a sunset or a hike or a sermon or whatever it is. We're just there, present, like full and prayer would be the ultimate example. Uh, Simone Well, the French intellectual, once said that attention taken to the highest degree is the same thing as prayer. And uh, that's a bit of an overstatement, but I think her strong link between attention and the capacity of the brain for focus to the moment for flow and prayer is spot on. And then if you think about the opposite, when our mind is scattered and we're in that kind of animal brain where our fight or flight system is activated and we're scanning the environment, which for us is not necessarily the African savanna, it's our inbox or the DMs in our social media account or the freeway we're navigating the on-ramp for, and we're just scanning for potential threats, be it a, a coworker trying gunning for our job or a mean comment on Instagram or a you know car slamming into us on the freeway. 
we get into our survival emotions, you know, so psychologists attempt to categorize emotion and it's all a little bit arbitrary. So some people say we have nine emotions, some say seven, some say we only have two, but basically most agree we have survival emotions like anger and anxiety and shame and disgust and sadness that are designed to move our body away from a potential threat. And then we have one or two connection emotions like love and trust and actually curiosity, which is where humor comes from, surprise, capacity for delight, gratitude are on the connection side. So some psychologists would simplify the whole thing down and say there are really just two primary human emotions, love and fear. And I love that frame because I think it's right in line with the writings of the New Testament, very beautiful symmetry there. But when we're in that kind of scattered attention brain space, we're in our survival emotions. We're full of anger, anxiety, fear, disgust, shame. We're not in loving, trusting, calm, connection, curious. And again, this is crucial for prayer. You know, attention to the highest degree is the same thing as prayer. Like you can't pray to a God that you can't pay attention to, you know, and I'm not talking about prayer as in reading the shopping list to the skies. I'm talking about true prayer, deep prayer, more contemplative modes of prayer where you're just looking at God, looking at you in love, and you're just receiving the love of the Trinity being poured into your inner person by the Holy Spirit through Christ. That type of prayer is dependent upon, contingent upon a high a level of focus. And same with relationships. You know, I love uh, Daniel Siegel and some other psychologists have done great work on the link between listening deeply to another person and then feeling deeply loved. So Siegel has this idea of feeling felt. And basically all the research says that if you and I were in a conflict, we're not because we're not close enough to get really mad at each other. Right now I know nothing but good things about you and thoroughly enjoy you every time we're together. But I'm sure if I was your roommate or we worked together, or whatever, we'd get in tiffs inevitably. I know you would get mad at me. I don't know if I would get mad at you. But if we're crosswise with each other and we need to have a hard conversation, you know, the research shows that if I were to listen to you with full attention, eye contact, body posture, and with emotional attunement, so I'm not just like paying really good attention with my eyes and my ears and my body to what you're saying, but I'm emotionally paying attention. I'm feeling, if you're feeling anger or fear or sadness or hurt, I'm feeling that and I'm letting those feelings into my body. Even if at the end of the conversation, I completely disagree with your perspective and I, I don't accept your critique or your request out of my life and at the end of the day, we agree to disagree. Still, you know, the likelihood is that you will walk away feeling loved by me. And it could go two ways, that when people feel felt, it is in when they feel deeply listened to, paid attention to, and emotionally attuned to, it's indistinguishable from feeling loved, and uh, which I think gives us a whole new pathway forward, especially in relationships you know, with your kids or coworkers or people where you can't always agree on things. You can give each other attention, listening, love, and focus. So this capacity for attention is and focus 
that the digital age we're living through and the landscape of the modern world is just deracinating right and left, it's absolutely crucial to the two greatest commandments in the rubric of Jesus, of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. Yeah. It's a fascinating idea that I think, you know, as you put words to it, it makes sense to most of our lived experiences. I think many of us have had the experience of sitting with somebody, whether it's a friend or an acquaintance or whoever, and having a difference of opinion on a particular position on whatever, politics or theology or whatever, and yet walking away with a strange, surprising sense of connection, Mm -hmm. not because of the position, but because the posture toward one another was one of attention, attentiveness, care, care, love, all those things. In many ways, for those listening who are in pastoral ministry, that is in many ways um, (laughs) the role is to give the gift of our attention. uh, Yeah, I mean, think about like, a really good therapist. They are yeah. they are not hurried. They tend yeah. to be calm. They are incredible listeners. They are emotionally empathetic. They're not in a rush. They're present. They have a high capacity for attention. You know, and that's not just a professional skill set. That's a way of being in relationship that I think is deeply congruent with discipleship to Jesus. That phrase, way of being in relationship, I think is so helpful. There might be a practical question amongst people who maybe aren't quite fully grasping the um, functionality of what you're saying. So maybe some people are listening saying, John Mark, that sounds really wonderful, but I'm I'm not a monk who lives in a monastery that can sit and <laughs> stare at the flowers all day. You know, mm-hmm. or wash the dishes and fix the sandals like Brother Lawrence and just be in God's presence. I have a job and I have kids to drop off and all of that. So the reality is so do you. <laughs> so yes. so do I. So speak um practically for that person. It's like, okay, explain this to me. The way you're talking about it feels like I, I literally stop. And that's true. I'll talk about a rule of life a little bit later, but Talk about functionally how this plays out in a real person's life in the 21st century world. Mm. Well, I mean, I think at a meta level, some of this comes to learning to slow down and simplify our lives so that we can move at the pace of Jesus through our days. And uh, I think one way to think about discipleship to Jesus in the modern era is as a disciplined attempt to slow your life down and simplify it around what really matters, which is ultimately prayer and community and meaningful contribution through our work, whatever, whether it's paid or unpaid. And less is more is not just like a minimalist aesthetic. It's like a way of being, I think, for a serious Christian. And then, you know, that means uh, an honest reflection on the habits and routines and rituals and relationships and commitments and activities that make up our days and our weeks and our months and our seasons of life. And it means thinking about curation, meaning what do we want to cut out of our schedules and our habit structure and our relational obligations because it's speeding us up or it's overwhelm or it's forming us into people that are 
less attentive and more hurried and angry or anxious? And what do we want to put in? So, you know, for me, I'm very conscious that because living this way means I have to live against the wider cultural ethos. So Flannery O'Connor had that beautiful line, we have to push harder against the age that we're living in than it pushes against us. So we have to push harder against the digital age and the pressures of a Silicon Valley where you are, or LA where I am, then it pushes on us and it pushes on us really hard. So we have to push back even harder. One joyful, simple, practical way to do that is to put focal practices, uh, which is language used by a philosopher named Albert Borgman, into our daily lives. And a focal practice is basically any kind of a habit or a routine or an activity that moves you into a flow state, that puts you in this like deep attention where you almost lose track of time. And you want to start with just things that are fun. So for you, it may be gardening it may be making love to your spouse. It may be exercise. Certainly not for me. I hate exercise. I force myself to do it five days a week. But some people really love it. They just, when they get out on a run and there's burning sweat, they're just there. It may be surfing. For me, it's uh, reading fiction at night or poetry. It may be walking your dog. It may be, you know, Brazilian jujitsu. Like it can be almost any, it could be reading scripture. It could be anything. But you want to, Incorporate these practices, ideally ones that are joyful, that you love and enjoy, into your life, even if in micro doses, into just a little bit each night or in the morning or on your days off, in order to increase your central nervous system and your body's capacity to be in a flow state. Because we have to recognize we're whole people. Um, I was deeply impacted by Matthew the Poor, who's a current kind of modern day um, Egyptian Christian Coptic monk. And he has this great insight about how you are outside of prayer is how you will be inside of prayer. So if outside of prayer, you're distracted and in a hurry and constantly on your phone and you can't focus your attention and doing a million different tasks, and then you sit down to pray, that's how you'll be inside of prayer. So outside of prayer, you need to incorporate in like focal practices. And again, start with things you love that are fun, that are not like a duty for you, but are, oh, I love baking, or I love surfing, or I love walking my dog, or I love, you know, make playing my guitar, whatever it is. And what you're trying to do is build your body and your soul's capacity to pay attention in those moments where it really matters, like prayer each morning, like deep relational life. So, of course, the way that ancient Christians did this is through a framework they called a rule of life. And uh, this is much of my work right now is trying to teach on this and train people to design and architect and build a rule of life for the modern era. And it's ancient language. It's not modern language. Rule of life. Uh, in Latin, it was the word regula which is uh, where we get English words like uh, regular or ruler. It just means a straight piece of wood. But a lot of lexicographers, a lot of scholars think that it was the word used for a trellis in a vineyard or a winery. If you've ever been to a winery in wine country, all vines grow on a trellis, this kind of wooden support structure to hold the vine up and get it out of wild animals and disease and getting trampled on and kind of index it up towards sun and oxygen and rain and light so it can grow and bear the maximum amount of fruit. 
and early Christians were very serious about Jesus' teaching in John chapter 15, which is really ground zero for Jesus' teaching on spiritual formation. And it's through metaphor, not through Western kind of linear essay style thinking. It's through metaphor. And he has that beautiful line, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And the first Christians took that metaphor really seriously and said, all right, if in the metaphor, you know, we're branches on the vine, well, what does a vine need? A vine needs a support structure. It needs a trellis. It needs a regula. And so they developed what they called a rule of life, which is just basically, I would define it as a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that organize our life around God. And in our case, has the potential to slow our lives down and simplify our lives around God. And so for me, you know, this is a crucial part of my discipleship and life. And you may be hearing this and thinking, I've never even heard of this before. And that just sounds like one more thing to do. But another way to frame it is, even if you've never heard this language before in your life, you already have a rule of life. You likely have some kind of a schedule some kind of a set of practices, even if it's not intentional, if it's just I wake up in the morning and I read the news and I check my phone and I see what's happening on X or whatever, and I drop off my kids at school and then I pick up a banana smoothie and like, you already have a habitus, some kind of a habit life architecture. You already have relationships. You probably have a budget or some kind of plan to spend your money. You probably have some kind of a regular workday schedule that you go through. You probably have like activities that you fall into regularly on the weekend for hobbies or play or shopping or whatever. And what we often don't realize is the problem in our lives is not often that we don't have a rule of life. It's that we do have a rule of life and it's not the right one. And the problem isn't that our rule of life isn't working. It's that it is. It's that it's forming us into these people who are hurried and maxed out and exhausted and stressed out and feel far from God and feel incapable of loving presence with each other. So I think, you know, a serious kind of formation audit or life audit, what are, what is the schedule that you're living by? What are the practices? What are the relational rhythms that your life is organized around? This is an utterly crucial question because it moves us beyond willpower and just trying to be less hurried and trying to be better Christians and trying to have a better life with God. It moves us out of that willpower realm that is so grossly ineffective and into a more joyful, peaceful life of following Jesus with other people at his pace and in his way. You and I already have a rule of life a schedule, a set of rhythms, a cadence of habits, a budget, and a list of priorities, and a long-running list of tasks and to-dos. So take a moment and ask yourself the question, what is your rule of life? How have you cultivated it? Have you cultivated it with intentionality, or has your schedule and your priorities simply created the rule of life for you? And if intention has not been a part of creating and cultivating your rule of life, then what might be a necessary next step for you to cultivate a rule of life that organizes your life around the person you sense God is calling you to be? Take a moment, ponder those thoughts, and then we'll come back to the conversation with John Mark.
As you begin a new year, you may already be longing for a slower pace of life and more breathing room to hear from God. But how can we begin to make these shifts? In his book, A Year of Slowing Down, author Alan Fadling has designed a daily devotional to help you center your every day around God's living presence and live a less hurried life. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on a year of slowing down at ivypress.com. Gosh, that, that final thought, I mean, there's so much there. That final thought, I think, is so helpful. You almost threw it in there as an aside. But um, especially where I live and where you live and where you did ministry for so many years in Portland, Pacific Northwest, and really all over the world, but especially in these highly educated um, sort of uh, urban, suburban centers, um, willpower is sort of deified on a pedestal. Yes. Uh, if I just have enough of it, if I could just exert enough of it, I can form the life I've always dreamed of. I, I just recently was reading um, Jim Wilder, who's, yeah. who was you know dear friends with I've Dallas Willard, this book renovated. Yeah. And he has a, yeah, he's got this short little line in there, uh, Jim Wilder, I'm paraphrasing him, but he essentially says, Willpower is a great sign of maturity, but it is terrible at producing maturity. Mm. Oh, you cannot just will your way to line. it. You need a plan. Yes. You need a rule of life. Yeah. And I, I also, it's such an important thought that everyone has yes. one. Like literally everyone. every person has one and is being formed in whatever their rule of life is is intending to form them. I think that's such a great thought. I want to talk, this is connected. I want to talk about your newest book. And uh, when I first saw the title, um, I was like, oh my gosh, of course, of course, John Mark is, uh, is going to write this book. Um, well, I, I'll just, I'll just throw it to you. Like, tell us about the newest book that is just coming out now. It's an introduction to spiritual formation. To me, from the outside looking in, looks very much like, you know, the crux of so much of your work for many years now. Um, so tell us about the book. And then I want to talk about the three key movements in the book. Yeah. The book's title is Practicing the Way, Be With Jesus, Become Like Him, and Do As He Did. And it is, yeah, an overview of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus or a disciple or a student of Jesus and what that would look like in the digital age with hurry and busyness and exhaustion where burnout is a rite of passage and none of us can pay attention for more than a few seconds at a time and we're moving from city to city and job to job. How do we follow Jesus in such a way that we both experience him deeply in a day-by-day -day basis. You know, I quote Willard in the book, it's this beautiful line, we must arrange our days so we are experiencing joy, confidence, and trust in our everyday lives with God. How do we arrange our days in such a way that joy and a sense of closeness to God and 
and a, a sense of uh, just genuine confidence and peace in our hearts is just the natural byproduct of how our days are put together. And that kind of takes us into rule of life, which is a large kind of chunk of this book as the kind of how, the pragmatic working out. And again, for me, I'm really interested in going beyond ideas and inspiration to formation, to how do we move from reading books and hearing sermons and good things that I give a lot of time and energy to, to integrate ideas from the teachings of Jesus and the vision of Jesus into our bodies and our muscle memory and our schedules and our lives in such a way that we experience profound change. You know, I uh, was teaching yesterday at church and was just in reflection on Paul's use of the Greek word metamorpho, which is the word where we get formation from or transformation from. And in English, it's where we get the word, you know, metamorphize. And that's the word used for how a caterpillar is changed into a butterfly. One lexicon I read defined it as the change, a change in the essential nature or form of something. And so this is not like, light behavior modification that the New Testament has in mind. Like you're going gray, let's dye your hair, or you have some wrinkles, let's get a facelift, or you're kind of, you know, dad core style, let's get you some cool clothing. It's just not like a superficial change a couple habits, tweak, be a little nicer, be a little less stressed out. This is quote, a change in the essential nature of form. Like that's the word used by Paul and the writers of the New Testament for the level of change, healing, growth, freedom, salvation that is possible under apprenticeship to Jesus. But that is not most Christians in the West's experience of life with God. They don't, very few people experience that level of transformation that the New Testament claims is on offer, you know? And so that's why I wrote this book. I, I, I know that I am not alone in my ache, both for a more intimate life with God in the digital age with teenagers living in a city and having a job and busyness and all of that, or in my ache to be formed or really transformed into a person who is like deeply healed and matured and changed into a person of love and joy and peace and all the fruit of the spirit, not by willpower, but by arranging my life around the practices and the way of Jesus. Talk to people who might read the subtitle of the book, Be With Jesus, Become Like Jesus, Become Like Him, and then Do As He Did, and might assume that it is that is the linear path of formation, that I spend a little bit of time being with Him, and then I can become like Him, and then really the end result is that I do what he did and and then what? Because that's not what you intend. And and I've heard you write and I've I've read you write and heard you speak extensively about formation, that it is not this linear path. The reason I ask the question is because I think there is on both sides either <clears throat> just deep intrepidation and maybe even anxiety or fear that it's this sort of linear path and I just can't seem to get past step one, or on the other side of it, a sort of um, ego in us that says, well, like I did the stuff, I went to Awana and I, you know, whatever. 
Um, talk about that. Oh, man, you know what I'm thinking of right now? Thomas Keating has this great line, the spiritual journey is not a success story. It is a series of humiliations of the <laughs> false self that become ever more yeah. and more profound. Uh, the spiritual journey is certainly not linear, and we are certainly not in control of it, and we do not habit stack our way into spiritual formation with a great rule of life, you know? And again, especially for people in our part of the world, you know, that can be really easy to think of discipleship as just another life hack, you know, and uh, spiritual formation is just a Christianized version of mindfulness or TED Talks or cold therapy or whatever is all the, all the rage. And those things can be really helpful, but that's not spiritual formation. And um, I do think there is a bit of a progression that you see in Jesus with the 12, uh, where there's a beginning point that's an invitation, just, hey, come follow me, come, literally in Gospels, John, come and be with me. And uh, he chose 12, you know, in Mark, I think it's Mark 3, that they may be with him. That was the first step, just come and be with me, come and follow me around Israel. And then you watch over time as very slowly, but surely they are kind of formed and reformed into new types of people. And then after a while, Jesus begins to send them out first, like just a little bit. And then, of course, at the end, there's the go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts 2, you're going now to the world, not just Jerusalem and Israel, but Samaria and the end of the earth. So it's not a linear three-step thing. And we move forward on all fronts and we're not in control of it. But there is a little bit of a progression and I think the main point there is not to key in on a three-step process. There is no three-step process. There's certainly no formula. But it is to figure out how to organize our lives around discipleship to Jesus. So, you know, I open the book by saying that we're all disciples. We're all followers. The question is not, are you a disciple? It's who or what are you a disciple of? And that language sounds anathema, especially on the West Coast, especially if you're anywhere close to my age, especially if you've bought into the indoctrination of a be true to yourself culture. But the irony, and this is where all the digital stuff that the work that you're doing is so important, is, you know, there are powerful forces. This is the closest I get to conspiracy theory culture. There are powerful forces in Silicon Valley and far beyond that have a vested interest in you believing that you're not following anybody. You're just following the desires of your authentic self, not the algorithms that were fed to you by spending hours a day on your phone. Because if they can get you to think that you're freely choosing to buy this product, vote for this candidate, think this thought, adopt this ideology, put this flag on your doorstep, then they can keep you and I blind to the ways that we're actually being manipulated from the shadows by other people's agendas and desires to profit off of us, to manipulate us, to get our votes, our likes, our attention, our money, our time, our beliefs, our ideologies. Um, our social opinions, so on and so forth. And I don't mean that in some kind of angry, reactionary way. I think that's just a sober realization of this is the world we live in. There are powerful forces that are discipling you and I every single minute of every day that are forming us every time we open our phone, every time we step into our corporate office, every time we walk outside our door and get in our car and drive down the street. There are powerful forces that are discipling us um, apprenticing us, forming us, and again, push back harder than what pushes against you, the Flannery O'Connor line. 
So I think the call is really, what are you organizing your life around? For many people, Jesus is not the center. Jesus is like a hobby or an addition or a life hack. But really, work is the center or career advancement or family or physical fitness or fame or art. All good things, but not the thing um, that really become the organizing center of our life. And I think the call of Jesus is to make discipleship to him, the organizing center. I mean, Jesus had that beautiful line, seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be added to you as well. So those things, you know, our work, our career, our finances, our relationships, our family, they all find their rightful place, but only when integrated into the right kind of center, the right foundation for living. And what I'm trying to call people to is really just what Jesus is calling me to and all of us to, and that is to make him the foundation. Um, and this is language used by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount for living. Yeah, profound word I, for, for people, especially for those who are not familiar with your work and the sort of um, the lineage, theological formational lineage that your work carries on. Yeah, I'm really excited about them digging in and, and having this yeah. introduction. And for those who are, I mean, that's what I'm really trying to do. I've been so deeply graced by the world of spiritual formation, the writings of people like Dallas Willard and, and uh, many others, so deeply formed. And I want to make some contribution, but mostly do my best to kind of pass that baton on to, you know, readers of all ages that are new to this conversation, but specifically younger readers in urban and metropolitan centers in the digital age. Most of my heroes, they, none of them were interacting with how do we follow Jesus in the digital age. Very few of them were interacting with progressive secular culture. Very few of them were interacting with the transience of modern life. And these are major challenges. The noise of modern life, how difficult it is just to get to quiet. And so um, I, I want to try to, I've been, my life has been transformed by books and ideas and practices that I have received as a gift from some of these modern day saints. And this book is very intentionally me trying to put all of that into one easily accessible book that we can pass out to each other and to our family members and friends and, and hopefully invite people into some kind of a similar journey of formation. Yeah. yeah that is in so many ways, the gift I think you have to offer um, church and followers of Jesus today. You've, you've been uh, such a tremendous help to me on a personal level and to so many people that I know and to our church. So really grateful for you as we, sort of land the plane here, John Mark, I want to ask you, you mentioned, um, you know, Jesus's sort of concluding words, his great commission to his followers, the 11 young men that remain at the end of Matthew's gospel. And um, I've always found it so fascinating in Matthew's gospel. There's this little throwaway line that I don't think should be a throwaway. It's lingering there, just staring us in the face. It says that the 11 gather Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and then it says that some of them doubted, and then literally the line after that, some doubted. So there's 11 young men, they've seen the resurrected Christ, and a handful of them are like, dude, I don't know. I still don't know. I'm not all the way there. And Jesus says to all 11 of them, 
go and make disciples and then boom, off they go, all of them. And, um, and then the birth of the Christian movement. Just as we conclude our conversation here today, maybe give a brief pastoral word for those of us who are listening and maybe not quite like those 11 young men standing on that hillside, but you know, we've got our own doubts. Like, I want the thing you're talking about, John Mark. I want to experience life in ongoing communion with Jesus. I want to be with him and to become like him. And I want to experience the richness of a beautiful rule of life centered on Christ. But I have doubts. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I have the discipline. I don't, maybe it's deeper than that. Like, I don't really know if God wants to be with me. Um, speak to those of us who are listening that have doubts uh, and give a pastoral word. And Jay, I mean, as you know, there are so many different directions we could go to end this conversation. But one thing I'm struck by in that story is there was not one disciple who was doubting and was with Jesus. There was a community of disciples that were together. Some like Thomas doubting and others, you know, like the Apostle John, just full of robust faith. And I think that goes to the spiritual journey, you know, often a concept like spiritual formation or discipleship or rule of life is run through the grid of kind of Western radical individualism. And we think, how do I craft my rule of life? How do I open my life to spiritual formation? How do I deal with doubts? And again, that's not bad. But I think, how do we is a much better question. And I think this is a journey that is lifelong. Um, my book is more of a primer. You know, this is not a short, easy, formulaic journey. It is a lifelong, long, winding one. And it is not a journey we go on alone. It is a journey we go on together. Jesus did not have a disciple. He had disciples, plural. And to follow Jesus is to slow your life down to his pace and is to travel with him in his company and with his community on the long and winding spiritual journey. And so I think when we have doubts, we need more than ever the people around us for their faith to buoy our own, for their discipline to buoy our own when we're just in a season of survival because we just had a baby or we just lost our job or we're grieving, whatever, for their sense of hope to buoy our sense of despair, for their sense of commitment to uh, kind of strengthen and carry when ours is waning, and for their sense of kind of real holiness to kind of stand there to lovingly call out our temptation and vice versa. And we all, through the highs and lows of the spiritual journey and the health seasons and the sickness seasons or the unhealth seasons, we're there for each other. So that may be a, a non-orthodox answer, but I think where my mind goes is um, start small. Do not attempt to like adopt the rule of St. Benedict tomorrow morning and, you know, go through this crazy digital purge or whatever. Start small. Start with one small focal practice tomorrow that you enjoy and love and one daily moment in prayer, like so small. Start where you are, not where you feel you, quote, should be based on some idealized vision in your head. 
and take it slow. This is not about adding to your life. It's about subtracting from your life. It's not about adding complexity, but pursuing simplicity. And take a lifelong approach. This is long and slow and go together. Find a few people, go deep, go together, and you'll be just fine. Yeah, that's a great word. John Mark, for folks who want to find out more about you, connect, you've You've created so much good work out there. Um, where's an easy, accessible place they can go to connect with your work? You can go to johnmarkcomer.com, but my whole life right now is at practicingtheway.org, which is a new organization we've started that the book bears the name of. That is our attempt to create resources to do all of this kind of stuff for you and for churches and small groups. So it's all available. Everything there is free. Practicing the way yeah. to work. Yeah. Uh, John Mark and I were talking right before I hit record about um, the small group that I belong to and our church. And we're doing the prayer practice from practicing the way oh, along so with like cool. 25 other small groups in our church. So I, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It's having a, a really, really um, cool impact on, on us and a formative sort of shaping impact. I paid him to say that. I said, so, hey, bro, hey, if I send you a coffee hey, gift sponsorship. card, will you hey, say this? Sponsorship. <laughs> oh, I can't recommend it enough. John Mark, your dear friend, thank you so much for being on, for blessing uh, and encouraging our folks who are listening. Really, really appreciate you. No, thank you for having me. Bless you and peace to you all. Thank you guys so much for joining us for that conversation. I'm sure that so much of what John Mark had to say is provoking thoughts and ideas. Maybe it's challenging you or convicting you. My hope and prayer for you is that you would do more than just listen and hear, but that you might act, participate with God as, as he leads you toward an unhurried life, a life of ongoing communion with him. Um, if you're new to the podcast or if you've been listening and this podcast is helpful for you, we would encourage you like it, share it, subscribe, share it with friends. Um, it's really hugely helpful for us. So grateful that you're on the journey with us and we will talk to you all again very soon. The Digital Examine is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound Engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Helen Lee, Travis Albritton, and Andrew Bronson. Our production assistants are Christine Policcio and Isis Tolson, and I'm your host, J.Y. Kim. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel, and leave a rating and review to support the podcast. <laughs>